Welcome to the Littler Diversity and Inclusion Podcast. Conversations related to the human resource challenges of an ever-evolving workforce. Hello, my name is Cindy Ann Thomas. I am a principal with Littler and a co-chair of our firm's EEO and Diversity and Inclusion Practice Group. I partner with our clients in the diversity and inclusion space with a focus on advising on as well as developing and providing legally compliant training and education initiatives. It was in Romeo and Juliet, of course, wherein William Shakespeare's love-struck female lead posed the question, what's in a name? Well, 420 years later, in the talent recruitment space, it would appear that the answer to this question is actually a lot. Some of our listeners may recall the field experiment that was conducted a few years ago by the National Bureau of Economic Research, wherein nearly 5,000 resumes in response to help-wanted ads randomly alternating between stereotypically white-sounding names and stereotypically black-sounding names were evaluated. They found that it took 50% more mailings to get a call back for a black name. A white name yielded as much benefit as eight years of experience, according to this study entitled, Are Emily and Greg More Employable Than Lashika and Jamal? In another corresponding study, 36% of Black and Asian candidates said they whitened their resumes and two-thirds reported knowing someone who does. Accordingly, job applicants from traditionally underrepresented groups have been resorting to a practice called resume whitewashing where candidates alter any information on their resume that may hint at their ethnicity. It is a modern-day form of passing as a member of the dominant group. Research has also found that recruiters spend an average of six seconds, yes, six seconds, on each of the 250 resumes that they receive for the typical available position. Couple these six-second assessments with the reality of the role that unconscious bias plays in determining who might be invited for an interview, and organizations could find that they may be missing out on talent, on markets, on money. On the compliance side, overt tendencies in this area are likely exposing your organization to considerable legal risk. This is a fascinating issue to me, and as usual, I'd invited a couple of guests to help me unpack it a little bit. I have with me Amy Peterson. Amy is the Division Director of the Parker and Lynch and Agilon Professional Search Firm in Overland Park, Kansas. Amy, who earned her bachelor's degree from Missouri State and an MBA from Baker University, has 20 years of accounting and finance-specific recruiting experience. We should note that Amy has won numerous awards for her work in this space at both the local and national levels. I also have my colleague, Jeffrey Henslick. Jeffrey is a product of small town Missouri. After high school, he escaped to Chicago for college at DePaul and law school at Northwestern. Against all plans, he returned to Missouri and in 1996, moved to Kansas City, where he has practiced labor and employment law for 23 years, the last 
three of which have been to our good fortune with Littler. Jeff defends employers across the spectrum of employment disputes, but he works just as hard on prevention, regularly conducting human resource audits, policy reviews, and trainings. Jeff and Amy, thank you for joining me in what will hopefully be an enlightening conversation for our listeners. Now, Jeff, we are both fully entrenched employment defense attorneys. But that said, what's your reaction to this practice that candidates who fit into certain demographics have felt the need to have to devise a strategy to cope with this reality amongst many organizations? Well, thank you, Cindy Ann. I think my initial reaction is the initial reaction we we have generally, which is, come on, it's 2019, how can this still be going on? But if you just think about your own experiences, I quickly went to a graduation ceremony that I attended where the valedictorian of his college class was a gentleman named Javon. And when a Caucasian male walked across the stage to accept his valedictorian presentation, the audience laughed because his name was Javon and they expected it to be an African-American. And so we do associate with this implicit bias. We do associate to quick thoughts of, we say, Javon, that's going to be an African-American. And so when you think about it, you think, I, I, I refer to it as sad, mad. It makes me sad that in 2019, it's still going on, but then it makes me, it also makes me mad. Mm-hmm. I talk about uh, in my own life about the rocks that we carry in our wagon. And as a gay man in the eighties and nineties, I did everything I could, Cindy Ann, to, um, I call it now, straighten my resume. Like I would never have indicated on my resume any association with the organization GLAD, which was Gays and Lesbians at DePaul. Um, The resume, right, is the initial encounter, but I still showed up gay. And when I got in the door, I still showed up gay. And these folks that we're talking about, you know, they're still going to show up. African-American or Asian. Unlike with race, I could hide that I was gay at least for a while. You can't hide race. I dated an African-American man that at a moment between the two of us asked me what was the first thing I noticed about him. And I responded that I had noticed his smile. And he told me that I was being disingenuous because I had noticed his race because that's the first thing everyone noticed about him. When it's implicit, it's not easy to see, right? When the bias is implicit, it's not easy to see. But it's just as toxic, and it's just as unfair, and it needs to be recognized and rooted out. Absolutely. So, Jeff, it's interesting that you bring up that example about Javon. It's a perfect example of the fact that from birth, our brains form these neural pathways that relate every word to various images that are associated with that word as a result of media, our experiences, uh, our mental file cabinets, so that when something does not connect with what is in our mental file cabinet, as you said, they chuckled because he wasn't what they expected. Yeah, undoubtedly. 
I have a, another example. Of, a very good friend of mine was dating and she, uh, a, a gentleman, and his name is Jamal, and she referred to him as Jamal. And we were all meeting him for the first time at a wedding reception. And to our great surprise, Jamal is Caucasian. His parents named him, it spelled it J-E-M-A-L, but we all expected her to walk in with an African-American man. And again, you know, we laughed that that was our expectation. But when you think about it in the context that we're talking about it, right, where it's used as a, as a screening tool to deprive people of opportunities, it's not remotely funny. Absolutely. Jeff, had you ever heard of resume whitewashing or resume whitening, as it is also called before I invited you to be on this podcast? I had not, but I knew it existed, right? Because I had, as I said, I had straightened my own resume to make sure there was no reference. You couldn't look at my resume and know that I was a gay male. I had a leadership position at a, it's called the National Association of Gay Amateur Athletes that was responsible for bringing a large tournament, coordinating and organizing it that showed a lot of leadership skills, but I would never have put that on my resume in the 1990s because that would have outed me. And in many areas, in many businesses, it would have disqualified me. Right. And what a shame it is, truly, when candidates feel the need to leave off the mention of certain awards or certain community groups or certain jobs because of the fact that they may lend uh, some hint as to their race or ethnicity. Well, it's, um, I can speak from my own experience, right? I refer to it as, as gay shame, right? I was hiding who I was to get in the door. And it's, I think we all carry rocks in the wagon that we pull in our lives. And that rock just got heavier and heavier it is difficult to pretend to be something you're not. It is difficult to feel like you have to be inauthentic to fit in. And that rock just got heavier and heavier in my wagon. And it was also, in my mind, totally disrespectful to the person that I was sharing my life with. And so I felt cheap and inauthentic and to a certain extent dishonorable. And so I decided that I was going to remove that, that rock from my wagon. It was just something I was no longer willing to pull around. At the end of the day, I just didn't want to be anywhere who did not want my true authentic self. But that was my decision, and it should be my decision. Absolutely. Apparently, a number of minority job seekers reject this practice uh, of, of whitewashing, or as you have offered... Uh, another example of straightening your resume, presumably in the name of transparency, since the company is going to find out. So they might as well know from the outset, right? Others view this practice as essential to at least obtain an invitation to the proverbial party. What say you? Well, I, I, that's what makes me sad mad. I am not, I'm in the former group. I am, I would reject that today for my mm -hmm. own experience because mm -hmm. I don't want to be part of an organization that doesn't want my authentic self. But 
again, that, that should be my decision, and I've yeah. made that decision. It shouldn't be the organization's decision to screen people out uh, for traits that they, for whatever reason, don't want uh, within their organization. Absolutely. And interestingly, Jeff, they may get in, but if the company for whom they work doesn't have a true commitment to diversity, the strategy has only gotten them in, but does not do anything to alleviate other problematic systems and structures that will keep them from progressing once they join. For instance, and this seems like a good point to share this story with all of you. When I was a third-year law student, I applied for a summer associate's position at a particular law firm in Ontario that I felt was a fabulous match for me. And long before resume whitewashing was a thing, I was shortlisted from hundreds of others based on an impressive resume, one that included law review, I might add, and an excellent telephone interview with the hiring committee. Well, I showed up for my in-person committee interview and about which I had been warned would take a minimum of two hours. They told me weeks in advance, you have to make sure that you are available from 10 a.m. to 12 p.m. Little known fact here, but my middle name, which I had always listed on my resume when I was in college and later in law school, and for no other purpose back then but for giving my full name, is Luciana. Yes, Luciana. I hear you chuckling, Jeff. For listeners who may not know me, I'm black. And can I just say that when I showed up for my live interview, the principal attorney who came out to greet me called out my full name, not once, but twice, even though I was the only person waiting in the reception area. And I stood the first time he called my name. After he kind of stumbled through a greeting and a handshake, he said he'd be back in a few minutes. He disappeared. He came back to apologetically explain that our meeting would be much shorter than first anticipated because every member of my interviewing committee, and there were seven of them, was suddenly preparing for a trial. But they hadn't apparently known about three weeks earlier. <laughs> so that's I was that's given not a, how the law works. <laughs> exactly. So I was quickly given There are no, there are no surprise trials. <laughs> no, absolutely. Absolutely. So I was given a tour of the library and thanked for my application and thanked for coming down four hours away from another city. Uh, it took 15 minutes. And I'm not sure if either one of you is old enough to recall the 1967 Sidney Poitier and Catherine Hepburn classic, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner? Well, this was the remake, Guess Who's Coming to Interview? And I share this very personal story of my own to simply make the point that whitening a resume, to, to your point, Jeff, at the end of the day, does not help worthy candidates with an organization that is not diversity ready. Because when the truth is unveiled, ironically, it is the company's true colors, if you will, that end up being exposed. So the strategy to battle screening bias it may get you the call, but the gig's up once you show up, right? Yes, you, you're going to show up, Cindy Ann Black. Yes. And biased representatives of, of those companies who already have a story about a racial or an ethnic group, for instance, are not suddenly going to experience any sudden wokeness 
when somebody who doesn't look like their name or seem representative of the kind of experience in education that their resume outlines walks in the door? Yeah, I don't, I don't think as they greet you for your interview that they're going to have an epiphany. Exactly. But I suppose that this is another conversation, isn't it? I think so. I mean, it, at least I would say as a, as a gay male, I'm going to get farther down the line before people realize that I had straightened my resume. And maybe then they will know my character yeah. uh, and yeah. decide on that. Right. So a lot may depend on the demographic that one is trying to, to hide, if you will, in this process. Well, you can't cure the culture if right. it's not ready. Right. Absolutely. Let me switch gears for a moment, Jeff. As an employment defense attorney, how do you respond to those scholars who have suggested that employers should pay for the harms they cause, even if the employer did so because of implicit biases, like the ones we're discussing, because as they posit, barriers to equal employment opportunities will persist if they don't. In other words, is a strict liability-like approach appropriate here? You know, Cindy Ann, that is a great question. I would back up from the question a little bit and say that, to me, law is like medicine and that prevention is worth a pound of cure. Mm -hmm. And so it is better to rethink how you think and operate on the front end. This is a an issue that is going to be easier to resolve if it's recognized rather than cured at the end. But as with medicine, right, people still get sick no matter how much prevention is practiced. And in law, people still get harmed no matter how much prevention is practiced. And then the question is, what do we do about the individuals who are harmed through no fault of their own by a bias, whether it's explicit or implicit? And the law is prepared to deal with explicit bias and has been doing so, but it is not prepared to deal with implicit bias because it currently requires intent. You have to intend to discriminate against someone. And so in an implicit bias, what we've been talking about are those logical jumps that Javon is an African-American or Jamal is an African-American or Cindy Ann Luciana is Caucasian. <laughs> and so right. what do you do with an implicit decision? And I think, I think strict liability is harsh. That may be my natural defense attorney mm -hmm. bias coming out. But I do think that people who are harmed deserve to be cured. I think strict liability would impose, I mean, you can talk practically the stresses it would impose on the existing legal system and on existing organizations because litigation is not an effective business strategy for any organization. But we can't separate the idea that, for example, the standard here in Missouri for under the Missouri Human Rights Act was until last August contributing factor. And so an implicit bias is a contributing factor. So that company was exposed under our law as it was written. And so you can't separate the fact that the existing law is going to cover some of this, but also that your policies, if you truly say 
and you truly mean that you do not tolerate discrimination, it doesn't matter whether the discrimination is explicit or implicit, intentional or accidental. It is still contrary to your policy. And I like to say that a culture of an organization is always going to be determined by the worst behavior it tolerates. And so culturally, that's going to be an issue today and going forward. Absolutely, absolutely. So I like your emphasis on prevention, of course. Uh, that's what we do. So when leaders hear their hiring managers consistently suggesting that a candidate is just not a good fit for the organization, there's that word fit, and those misfits tend to coincidentally not look like anyone else in the majority of that particular team or department, for instance, what should they be doing, Jeff? Well, to use your word, uh, Cindy Ann, I think they should be getting woke. And by that <laughs> I mean they should be paying attention and turning up the lights to see how what they're hearing compares to what they're seeing. You know, you don't have to be the most perceptive person to walk around and see that your workforce does not reflect the community in which you sit. You don't have to be the most perceptive person to walk around and see that the leadership does not reflect your workforce. And so it is time to, whether you do it through a formal audit, whether you do it through an informal audit, you start with training people so right. that they understand that they need to rethink how they think. And then you, you need to test that the training is becoming part of your culture. And the way to do that is through comparing aspirations with results. Absolutely. Thank you. Let's flip the script a little bit from what applicants are doing to respond to implicit bias in the screening and selection process to what companies are trying to do to shield themselves from making biased decisions in this process. Blind additions. And way before the TV show, The Voice, the Toronto Symphony Orchestra began to audition musicians blindly in 1980 by putting them behind a screen and having musicians come in on carpeted stages so that the click clack of heels could not be heard. And the result was profound. That orchestra, along with others who followed suit with this experiment, which was made up, by the way, almost entirely of white men in the 1970s, is almost half female and much more diverse today. We now have some good data that supports the fact that removing identifying details from all resumes for initial screenings can help eliminate biases in the early stages of a hiring process when people are making those very fast decisions. So I'm going to bring in another voice into the conversation at this point. Amy Peterson, thanks first of all for your patience and thanks for joining us today. Talk to us about the prospect or practicability of blind additions for other industries and professions as a way of filling vacant posts 
with external candidates. And in so doing, tell us about the low-tech strategies being used in the recruitment world. We'll address high-tech solutions in a moment, but let's be low-tech for a moment. Sure. So I think that there are about five different areas that I've identified that I consider low-tech ways to help ensure a more neutral thought process. And I would say the first one is a lot of companies are doing phone interviews that help as an initial step to help eliminate biases because it's a skill-based screen and it doesn't allow an employer to have a bias based on anything other than skills and communication style. Mm -hmm. Number two, I would say the application itself that companies have, if it's worded correctly, it should really only focus on skills for a job and the professional information that would not create any sort of bias. Um, another area that we see a lot of companies um, doing is testing. Many companies use different testing programs to assess skills and personality for overall fit for the company and the position. And this approach really allows companies to assess a candidate without any sort of similarity bias or confirmation bias, which are natural ways of humans thinking during a conversation with another person. Testing doesn't allow for a hiring company to draw any conclusion based on race or gender or religion or even just any sort of similarities that someone may have with a hiring manager or hiring mm -hmm. companies such as sports affiliations, activity interests, community right. involvement. Right. Um, a couple of ways that we work internally and um, really two examples that our firm uses. Um, we have a temporary recruiting division that has a hiring process where our recruiters gather the details and the needs of the company and the position. And then our recruiters screen and send whoever they see fit as a good candidate for the position to start directly on a temporary basis. And the candidate starts the job and works the first day as a trial without us sending a resume and really the company is going off of our recommendation. And this gives the candidate the ability to prove their skills before the hiring company, the hiring mm -hmm. manager has any sort of chance to even subconsciously have any sort of biasness. And lastly, my particular division, which is the direct hire recruiting division, we have a process where we as recruiters collect information from a company regarding the hiring details of a job. We screen the candidates for skills and we automatically set up a time block for the company to interview the candidates back to back based on our assessment only. In this process, we do not send resumes prior to the interview. They again go off of our recommendation, again allowing only there to be, to be no subconscious bias prior to the interview. Good. Very helpful. Thank you. And by the way, Amy, I assume that you had heard about resume whitewashing before I invited you to be on this podcast as well. You know, I think unofficially I've heard of it. Right. But in terms of what it was actually called, um, it's not a term that I have really ever heard before, but unofficially, yes, I've heard of it. Understood. Understood. Let's talk about language for a moment. There was something in the 
the fourth point that you had made um, that speaks to the issue of, of language. When I'm talking, for instance, about inclusion efforts to my clients and the power of words, they are often surprised when I take them to task on words or phrases in their job descriptions or postings like ninja or quarterback, as in the ability to quarterback a deal, uh, work hard, play hard, or even the word competitive. And I'm, what I'm really getting at here is what do you do when client listings or proposed listings from client skew white or skew male? They're coded, if you will. So this is interesting. Um, so in looking at this topic, I think, and, and I think of ads specifically that are posted, mm -hmm. um, or when jobs are described to us on the phone by our clients, they're described by oftentimes what types of, in addition to skill set, um, what types of mentality they're looking for. So some of those words that we hear are similar to, to what you're saying, tough-minded, think outside the box, driven, supportive, collaborative are some of the words that I think of. And I tested one of our standard ads recently on a gender decoder that I found online and found in our ad, which we write ads all the time, there were two words in the ad that could impact the gender of whom would apply to the ad. One word that we specifically used in that ad was competitive, and research actually shows that the word competitive tends to attract more male applicants than female yeah. applicants. Exactly. So I also pulled a random ad for the type of position that we typically recruit for, and the company was completely random that I pulled the ad for, and I did the same process with this decoder and the ad came back with 19 words that were coded as gender-specific words that could attract one gender over the other. And some of these words included decisive, assertive, driven, agreeable, interpersonal. But the interesting thing about that ad was half of those words were coded for the masculine side and half of them were coded for the feminine side and what tends to attract or research shows that tends to attract those type of candidates. So I thought that was interesting because it provided a fairly even balance. So I think it's possible that many companies are not aware that the wording of these soft skills in ads or even explaining their job opportunity could significantly Absolutely. and you know, possibly even negatively impact their applicant flow. Absolutely. And for the benefit of listeners out there who are scratching their heads about competitive, because I can almost see their angst, what is wrong with the word competitive? Uh, it goes back to what, when Jeff and I were speaking earlier about this issue of those pathways that start from birth, connect images with certain words. Well, it has been shown, and, and I think you know this, Amy, from your research, that competitive conjures up images of sports teams. Mm -hmm. And sports teams are, for the purposes of this research, typically male and typically white. Mm -hmm. So that is not considered to be racially neutral 
or gender neutral language as a result of the research that we now have in this area. Right. And I feel like sometimes, and this is my personal opinion, but sometimes some of these type of words that we've just described are not bad words to have in job descriptions or bad words to describe to somebody as the type of mentality that you're looking for, but I think it's an awareness of balancing those words so it doesn't yes. lean one way or another. Good point. Thank you for that. Now, Amy, some experts believe that they have unearthed a powerful new weapon in fighting unconscious bias in the recruitment process technology. So I'm going to ask you, how can we outsmart bias with technology in the screening process? So I think there are tools out there that can now help with this. There are tools that will scrub names from resumes and applications during the initial review of the skill set. There are tools that allow resumes to be screened based on data alone and no longer allow companies and or recruiters to rely on their own conclusions. There are skills based on assessments and personality tests, like I mentioned earlier, that are used all the time in determining if a candidate is a fit for a job prior to interviewing them. The key to using these processes, though, is to use them on all applicants, regardless of how they came in contact with the company. So we see applicants coming in through multiple resources, whether it's an ad or an employee referral or a candidate that has been recruited in and keeping the policies and sending everybody through the same screening and process, regardless of how they came about finding about the opening is key. Right. So you are referring to artificial intelligence here, right? AI as a tool to help de-bias the recruitment process. Right. And again, for the benefit of our listeners, AI is a much uh, scarier word, I think, uh, than, than it really is. It's just software. It's software. And I, I do think it's important to note that we are all constantly being classified with AI or software, and not just by race or gender or ethnicity. And the people who are designing those algorithms that you speak to, Amy, are encoding their respective experiences, values, education, uh, and, and other categories, for instance, even if not intentionally. And I say that so that, again, our listeners are reminded that increasing the racial or gender diversity of the members of those software design teams does not rid the process of bias in and of itself. Can either one of you outline some of the other concerns or limitations with using technology to de-bias the recruitment process? So a concern that I would tend to have with only using technology would be that technology can tend to screen people's skill sets out versus screening people's skill sets in. And this is truly from a skill set perspective. So although this, although technology allows companies to be less biased, 
even if it's subconsciously, on their interviewing or who they're selecting for an interview, they are likely, if they're only using technology, they're likely missing out on qualified candidates because the human didn't ask them an unprogrammed follow-up question regarding a skill or a project they've worked on that might be very relative to performing the job specifically. Right, right. Good point. Jeff? My thoughts were, um, as Amy just said, it's really focused on skill set. And one of the things that hiring managers are going to be looking for is talent. And so that it's going to be difficult for AI to screen based on talent. It also, to me, there is a root issue, which is building the resume. And I think that that in and of itself will lead to qualified people being screened out because the, the resume production process the, sure. is not necessarily a level playing field. So Amy, how do you get your clients who may be focusing on race or gender or any involuntary characteristic that is irrelevant to focus instead on the skills and experience that a candidate could bring to the organization? I mean, do you ever have those conversations? They are paying you to find the ideal candidate and they are telling you who their ideal candidate is. Help our listeners be a fly on the proverbial wall here. Sure, and I've been doing this for many years. So, of course, over the years, I've certainly have, have seen and heard clients who request and will mention preferences and candidate flow based on bias criteria. It definitely happens less now than it did several years ago when I started in this industry, but it certainly happens. When it happens, we have to be very direct and very quick to communicate to a client or a potential client, and it's typically potential client, that we cannot base our screening on the criteria, but specifically on the best qualified candidate for the skill set they've required and, and discussed with us. And how does that conversation go sometimes? <laughs> <laughs> it's typically a very short conversation and we make our point very quickly and very directly and then we move on to the next subject. Got it. Can you provide a few key guidelines for companies who partner with search firms like yours and who are genuinely committed to battling bias in the screening and selection process? Sure. So I think a, a couple of different things. Number one, focusing on interview questions that are focused specifically on professional questions and not even in a roundabout way, asking questions about what a candidate may be likes to do in their free time or asking about family life, asking every candidate the same set of questions, using multiple interviews to get different interview styles. Don't rely on your memory. I think taking notes is extremely important from a skill set yeah. perspective and it helps you to focus very specifically on the skill set and the progression of the resume and the career. Again, you know, like I've mentioned a couple of times, using these personality tests and skills testing programs are good ways. Also, being aware of your diversity within your organization and how it specifically looks for your company. 
we have many organizations when we talk to them that point out to us that they're always looking for a diverse pool of candidates. These type of companies are aware of diversity and we have to ask a follow-up question to a company to see what that specifically means to them because it looks very, very different in every company. Right. Perfect. Thank you. In the remaining few minutes that we have left, are there any closing remarks from either or both of you on this topic? And again, for the benefit of our listeners. Sure. Um, My closing thoughts would just be to keep rethinking how you think and keep learning. Uh, I've learned on this podcast. Cindy Ann, you said you could hear the reaction to the use of the word competitive, which never struck me before today as a gender-specific word, but I realized that if you told me that I was really competitive, I would say thank you. But if you told my sister that she was really competitive, she would say she's sorry. (laughs) What a great point. You're exactly right. So I think the last point I'd like to make is just regarding the war on talent. And as the job market continues to become tighter and tighter and unemployment continues to become lower and lower, I think it's critical that companies continue to have this progressive thought process and keep working towards this. Agreed. And particularly since we, again, we've got some good data that indicates that Apparently, 77% of Gen Zers indicate that a company's diversity is a deciding factor in joining and or staying with that company. We will have to leave it there for now. Jeff, my learned colleague from our Littler office in Kansas City, where he is a shareholder, and Amy Peterson, Division Director of the Parker and Lynch and Agilon professional search firm in Overland Park. Thank you both for taking the time to dialogue around this important topic. I hope you have enjoyed this podcast. Please feel free to reach out to us at podcasts at littler.com if you should have any questions about this episode or if you would like to discuss any component of your organization's needs with me or another Littler attorney. Thanks for listening. The purpose of this program is to provide helpful information for employers, addressing the latest developments in labor and employment relations. It is not a substitute for experienced legal counsel and does not provide legal advice or attempt to address the numerous factual issues that arise in any employment-related issue. To discover other labor and employment podcast series from Littler, the largest global employment and labor law practice, visit littler.com slash podcasts.